Welcome to the Reincarnation Podcast. I'm here with 502 Motorworks, Matt Phillips and Wade Lewis. This is Jeff and Brad with Reincarnation Magazine. Welcome to the show, fellas. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Hey, uh, 502 Motorworks in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I got to say, I just found you guys probably within the last year or year and a half. Um, some amazing cars coming out of 502 right in Louisville. Uh, three cars I know you guys are doing right here stateside and a handful more. Uh, getting a little bit of help from overseas. Can you tell me what you guys got going on down there? Um, yeah, we're building a um, uh, 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 race cars from the 1950s and 60s. And uh, they primarily are a C-type, a uh, slab side, and a, uh, a spider. And uh, what we tried to do is is make these cars as accurate to the originals as we possibly could. And um, they're nut for bolt and uh, dimensionally exactly like the original cars using period components so that they can get FIA paperwork to race as originals. I'm, I'm glad you said that because one thing I noticed right off the bat with your spider, your C-type, and your slab side, which are the three cars that you guys are are wholly in charge of, if I'm correct there, is like the authenticity is is right. right there. And I didn't realize that it was to that degree. And I think when I look at you guys, that's what definitely sets you apart from other guys that are making these types of replicas and reproductions. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that when we, when we looked at the market space and what our own uh, likes and wants are in vintage cars, um, we thought, well, you know, there's there's interest in cars that look like the original but have modern or contemporary improvements but there's also interest in cars that look feel and drive just like the originals did and you know sometimes you have to explain to people that's for good and for bad right. you know i mean disc brakes are better than drums generally but um you know a lot of guys that race these cars in the 50s at Le Mans, we're coming to the end of the Mulsanne Strait at well over 100 miles an hour and stopping it with drum brakes. And, um, you know, our thought was, was the cars that we're doing, a lot of the originals, the value has approached, you know, uh, you know, five, five million, yeah. six million dollars. And when we started talking to owners, we said, you know, we haven't seen you out in your car at any vintage events recently. And they kind of look at you with a smirk on their face. Yeah, I'm going to get my five million dollar car out there and run it. Exactly. Right. So, you know, what we, what we thought was is there's, there's this kind of sort of a, a, a three-piece market, so to speak. There is the guy that owns the original, and it's too expensive for him to go race, but he really enjoyed racing it. So here gives him an opportunity to race a car at 5% or 10% sometimes of what the original car's value is. He can buy one from us and go racing. There's the guy that wants to own one, but it's priced itself out of his market ever. He can't afford it anymore. So it gives him the opportunity to get in it, have fun, experience it. And then, you know, there, there's the part of, you know, the guy or gal that wants the car on the street. Um, because all of these cars, you know, if you think about racing back then, it was really production-based racing. You know, the cars were street cars that had been taken to the track and slightly tweaked the racing. But at the end of the day, they were still a street car. They were driving and, them to the track, in other words. Right, exactly. exactly. So, you know, a lot of the guys that, and gals that are interested in these are going, you know, 
I could go buy one that has all the modern stuff, but when I get in it, I want to go back in time. You know, I want to, you know, and, and it's hilarious because, I mean, you know, it's the whole Goodwood mentality with some of them. You know, they put the goggles on and the helmet and, and that's, you know, that's, and that's such a revival in that type of driving and racing now. You've got those events kind of scattered all over North America now, or like you say, leather helmet goggles and an open, and an open top. And it is. I mean, it really... You know, all, all kidding aside, I mean, when you get in these cars, you know, they're so visceral to drive. But at the same time, if you get on the right road and get away from contemporary traffic, you feel like you've gone back in time. Well, I think I can definitely relate to what you guys are saying. I mean, just like the authenticity, again, of these cars, they're indistinguishable almost. If To an untrained eye, to a guy who even is a car guy, like I would consider myself definitely a car guy. I've been in love with cars since the day I was born. If I walked up to one of your cars, which I, I regretfully have never seen in person yet, but I, I can tell a fake Cobra, quote-unquote, from, from 10 miles away, if I were to walk up to a slab side, I know that I would be wondering, what in the hell am I looking at? And I think that's kind of what differentiates you guys and, and makes what you're doing something unique. Well, it, yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, one of the other things that's, you know, it's been a challenge at times, but also an interesting thing is when parts aren't available, we go and make the parts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for some of the projects we've actually contracted with small batch and, and short run casting manufacturers where we deliver to them suspension upright drawings and well, well let's, let's talk about this at a deeper level. So, okay. so when you guys go, let's just, I, I don't know, let's start with the, let's start with the C type. I don't know why, but so did you take an actual C type of the era? Pull it apart, reverse engineer it, and rebuild it. Or how do you how do you even start with something like this? The, the nice thing on the C type is is Jaguar uh, when they built the car had a guy named Malcolm Sayer that was involved with the bodywork. And if you look at his original works, it's really amazing what he did. He was an aerodynamicist during World War II, and when he drew the body, he actually grid drew the body and gave you dimensions. Throughout the entire run of the body on exactly how it was to be put together. Thank you, Malcolm. So, yeah, a great guy. The other cool thing is is the guys that do our panel beating also have done an XJ13 Jag using one of the original motors. So that got them in good with the original Jag competition department. So when Silas and I and Matt have taken trips over to England, we've had the luxury of sitting down with about seven of the original competition department guys and going, what do you have? And they go, well, here's the drawings. Here's how this was made. Here's how we did this. And they had no so, problem sharing this stuff with you guys, huh? Well, they love it because, you know, for them, these cars are a legacy for what they did at JAG. You know, it's funny that you, you say that because I've always wondered why there's been such uh, pushback from modern manufacturers when people are making beautiful reproductions. To me, it's just bringing um, more more of the brand out let's uh, let's talk about you know move to the spider just a little bit and it's just a spider um you know jaguars embraced you guys at the c-type yet you know i would think that porsche should be just as happy that there's a spider out there and it's not a porsche spider let's understand but it it is a it's a salute to the original spider Mm -hmm. you know yet some manufacturers embrace it like it sounds like jaguar has yet porsche is kind of pushing back and saying you know don't copy our porsche i guess i see both sides of the story I think I think that to some degree it it's not always the company as a whole. I mm-hmm. think sometimes it's the legal department, right? And you know they view it as if this thing you're making is represented as one of our products, and for some reason it has a failure 
or someone gets hurt or it is not to, not to the quality that we would expect, right. then it's a full reflection on the company. Yeah, good point. That's, good that point. said, when, we, when we've shown the spider, um, and I won't name any names to protect the innocent, but we've had folks from, from Porsche North America comment that they really like the car and would like us to come to Atlanta and visit. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that you know it, it's always been this kind of um, tense relationship. I think they look at it and they go, you know, you guys did a really good job on that, and there's something to be said for that. And you know, our cars don't have any Porsche badging or anything like that. Now they do have a Porsche motor from mm-hmm. the period and a and a uh, five nineteen transmission of the period and. You know, they use those parts like the original would have. But, yeah, you're, um, you're jumping up to some things I actually wanted to talk to you about, about like period correct motors and stuff like that. So I'm going to pause you there because I still have a million questions I want to ask you. Sure. You jumped over real quick. All the stuff you guys build is aluminum bodied too, which Boy, is worth man. mentioning because, I mean, so much stuff now that's been reproduced is done in fiberglass, which is clearly easier but not as authentic. Um, you know, and you guys are hand hammering your aluminum bodies here right in the U.S.? Exactly. Well, in, in England mainly, and, and though it's really a, um, a process of twofold of hand hammering as well as using an English wheel. So, um, you know, it's really interesting if you take like our slab side, for example, and you look at how that body is put together and then you compare it to the old black and white photos of AC cars in 1962-63, all of our gas arc welded seam lines are in the same places um, and, and what we found with people that buy these cars is, is once it's painted, it's sometimes harder to tell that it's aluminum or fiberglass. Right. But what, what gives it away is, is when you look up in the fenders to the backside, and you can see that gas arc welded line mm-hmm. going through there. And it's it's odd that sometimes it's the things you can't see is what the buyers of our cars are the most interested in. Yeah. I think what's yeah. neat about the slab side is. I- here in the U.S., I think everybody's been everybody's kind of forgotten. They assume that the AC was Carroll Shelby's car. It wasn't. AC right. is the car. You know, it's originally a British car, and I think that we're also. I think if you asked a hundred people in the U.S. who consider themselves car guys that it, the AC was Carroll Shelby's design, you know, and right. you no, forget exactly. that it's not. Yeah, I mean, it really, you know, that car, you know, and what ultimately became, you know. The 289 FIA and the 427, you know, if you really think about it, how many times in automotive history have things converged to create such an amazing car? You had a car manufacturer that had a beautiful body, a Tajiro design chassis and all these things. You had Carroll Shelby who was looking to build a race car. AC didn't have a motor anymore. Right. So you had... Carol just happened to you know start calling around and looking for people that were willing to do it. Had been told no several times and managed to hit them at the exact yeah. right moment. Until and Lee it, Iacocca, who who did a lot of amazing things for us, thankfully with Mustangs and giving motors to Carol and everything like that. But yeah, it's 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 great stuff, great stuff. But but you know, I mean, you know, the to us that car was one we always really liked because it kind of is it's the granddad to everything that is Cobra. And, uh, and and the cars that came down the line. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is if you look from competition success with that racing program, the early cars really were the most successful with the small block in them when it comes to winning national titles, 
winning at a regional level and international level. The so, 289 cars versus the 427 cars, you're saying? Right. Or, yeah. right. So we really felt like the 289 cars were a great starting point for both a road-going car because they're beautiful. They're the best of all worlds. You know, you have all of that beautiful body styling. It's not overdone. Wire wheel cars. Um, and, and then you have, you know, a high-winding small block with a great four-speed transmission behind it. And, um, you know, you know, really, for a road-going car from that period, it's kind of hard to beat. And then on top of that, there's all of these different iterations you can build for the competition cars, whether it's the L.A. Times Grand Prix cars, on up to the Le Mans Fastback cars, and all the privateer cars. So when it comes to a platform that you can sell to customers and say, if you want to put it in a period livery, there's not just one or two liveries you can pick from. You know, there's a multitude of, of different liveries that ran, whether it's the, the Grant cars or, um, you know, the cars that ran um, in the various different regional races or even at an international level. So um, that was the thought process there, and we really love those cars. Phenomenal little engines in them. Uh, you know, the, the comp cars are on Weber's. Um, the street cars are on a uh, 715 CFM Holly, just like original. Um, so, you know, everything, all the little nicks and knacks are there on these cars. Since Down I to would the park mine in my living room, I'd want a Weber in it because I'd have the hood oh, yeah. up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the engine. You almost hate to shut the hood, the engine. <laughs> right, especially if there's a Weber on anything. You know, yeah. speaking of engines, and, and we were talking about period correct a little bit, you guys use date-coded engines. You know, explain our, how explain the process for how you're getting like period correct engines for these cars and all the other cars you build and we'll get into those but let's just start since we're talking about the ac let's talk about that how do you even do that like how is how are you digging uh, this stuff up it's a combination of cyber stalking and <laughs> uh, yeah. and uh putting feelers out with everyone you know that goes to swap meets yeah. or is in car clubs so we keep these knockdown crates. They're these plastic crates that typically warehousing companies use. And we will buy anything from an engine as a core to build up on up to sometimes we'll buy an entire car if it has the right engine in it. So, so if you see it, you grab it knowing you're going to need it at some point. Right. So we stock engines. So, you know, like for instance, on the V8s, the 289s. Um, we're able to find their five bolt 289s, their early 289s, but we're able to find those in a relatively ready supply because we know a lot of Ford guys and, you know, they know of old galaxies that have them in them or, or what have you. Um, when it comes to like the Jaguar, um, what we'll do is we will locate, um, Mark 7 Jags that use that same block because on the C type, it's interesting. A lot of the redos you see, have bigger engines in them. They have the 4.2 liter or the 3.8 liter or the cylinder head will have, you know, the C-type badging on it. But if you look at the original C-types, they didn't have any C-type badging on them in 51. That was a marketing thing that Jaguar used on down the line. Introduced later. Right. So that they kind of, they, they played up that competition success of the car into their production car. So you'll see later cars, you know, 55, 56, 57 with a C-type badge on the head, but that's really not appropriate for a 51 C-type. That wasn't around at that point. So the great thing is like a Mark 7 Jag will give us a great engine to use and has the proper three and one-half liter marking on the side, and we'll build those up from there on a competition basis, and we'll find close-ratio gearboxes. And we'll, we've got 
stock of those. So basically, you know, we keep those around any chance we get to, to get them. And the same thing with, with Porsche motors. You know, we'll find, you know, 1,500 Supers and various different engines that were pro- appropriate for that car, 519 transmissions, and we'll keep them in stock because that's really the variable when you build these cars is if someone says, I want one, how long is it going to take? Yeah, right, and you don't have a motor. If, you know, yeah, with the, the slab side, it's got to be a lot easier because you can steal an engine from a Galaxy or a Falcon or a Mustang okay. or whatever. Exactly. But on the Porsche, I would assume you're, you're probably the Porsche or the C-Type. It's I'm sorry, the Spider or the C-Type. It's got to be a, a little bit more difficult, I'd assume. Correct. Yeah, you have to kind of go on the hunt. So we try to plan accordingly for that. And, you know, we keep a stock of them so we can pull them out and redo them as needed. Um, you know, the slab side is an interesting car because, you know, when we went to construct that one, the suspension uprights weren't readily available. So we were able to find original drawings and a couple original patterns, and we have those cast for us. And we actually manufacture those parts like original now. And we have several customers that buy our parts to use on original cars. You say we were able to find what the hell does that mean? I mean, how do you just find original drawings? Like, I mean, you had to be digging and talking to people, and exactly. you, know, you just don't you don't find stuff like that. No, and that's one of the things I think where Silas and Matt really have a strong suit is, you know, I tend to kind of be the nuts and bolts of it in the te- technical part, and then I'll say, guys, we need this part. And luckily with both of them, they're willing to get on the phone and call just about anybody, even if it's in Australia. So you're and tracking the stuff down. Yeah, we'll start calling and calling and calling. And it's funny because, you know, with cars, I think more so than a lot of other hobbies, there's enthusiasts and then there's people that are just flat crazy. And we let, <laughs> we're, we're crazy. And luckily we know a lot of crazy people. So when you put a guy on it and say, I need this part, he will, he will not sleep for days until he usually finds it and calls you back. Yeah, that's our, our motor guy. Yeah, our motor guy's like that. Yeah. I mean, he, he eats, breathes, and I, I, it's amazing to me that he holds a marriage together uh, <laughs> because, you know, he's ate up with it. But, you know, you can rely on him implicitly, and, and when the motors come back, they're absolutely phenomenal. They're what so, um, so the Internet is our friend. And, yeah, I wonder uh, if this would have even been possible 15 years no. ago. You know, I don't when, think when, so. when tracking people down involves probably writing a letter and hoping you could get a phone number. Yeah, yeah. you didn't have to know the experts and and have those numbers in hand to be able to actually do anything like that. Yeah. I guess speaking of that, what is you guys' background? How did you get into this? <laughs> well, my, my this is Wade, and uh, I started with my dad back years and years and years ago. So he had always had old cars, uh, did some, did a little bit of racing, played around with them. And um, grew up around them. So that was kind of how I got into turning wrenches. And uh, always, I think, probably had an interest in cars and the old Robin Leach thing of, uh, you know, I always had champagne taste and a beer pocketbook. So I always wanted to figure out a way to get really cool cars, but I never could afford them. So this was of interest to me to get some things crossed off the bucket list on these cars we're building. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is Matt. So my my background is making look pretty. So <laughs> I've always done all the paint work for him. And uh, Wade and I go back about twenty plus years. Yeah. So I always made the cars look good, and Wade always made them run good. So it's been a good, uh, really good relationship. What is yeah, Silas's just, role? And I know he's not on the podcast no, right now, but I, now. I just walked in. <laughs> so now Silas uh, is here. So we got to quit talking bad about him. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's usual. It's the usual. <laughs> 
my background is, uh, from a car standpoint, my dad uh, was a uh, sort of a daredevil. He, I mean, he was in the Your Navy. Your dad was Evil Knievel? Uh, close to it. He, he was in the. He uh, was a Navy pilot and got out and was still a pilot and he liked to race. So we raced uh, uh, sprint cars until uh, the big boys came along and actually started putting car engines in the sprint cars instead of motorcycle engines. And uh, he raced hydroplanes. And then he got into uh, what I remember is flipping old Mustangs. He'd get <laughs> 65 and 66 Mustangs, take them back to the original and, and flip them. Uh, so that oh, sort of flipping. Got I thought for some reason you meant flipping. Never mind. <laughs> I'm with you now. Not literally flipping. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, what the hell is he doing flipping Mustangs? Demolition Derby? Flipping Mustangs. I get it now. He would have been really big if YouTube had been out back then. Oh, right? yeah. Flipping Mustangs. And then uh, then Wade and I worked, started working together about 20 years ago as well uh, at an internet company, and he got me you know, interested. He had his, his little weird cars he drove around, and he was always going, what's your favorite? You know, what do you like? Blah, blah, blah. And he actually got me to buy my first uh, collector car, which is a 64 SL, which I still have. And uh, then from there, the sort of bug, and you, you buy a car every couple of years. We sold the business back in 2010 and, and needed a place to store and work on our cars. So we started looking for a little building that we could do that. And uh, unfortunately, the monster grew and it turned into a 30,000 square foot building <laughs> with all services. Hey, if this uh, is a, if this is a monster, I want to be in your closet because I want to be scared of it because this is a great monster to have. So you said, you know, Wade had all his crazy little cars. I mean, you need to elaborate a little bit on that. Well, the, the cars he'd drive when, uh, when we worked together, he had... Uh, Point. Well, I used a 59 TR3 as a daily driver. And, yeah. Are you guys uh, all Louisville locals? Yeah, no. you had a, a P444 or 544. PV444, a 53 Volvo with a cuckoo on top. The turn signals that mounted to the roof. It was an import from Sweden. <laughs> and then uh, I redid a 62 Jensen Volvo P8. Or okay, Volvo. yeah, these are some obscure little cars that you're driving around Louisville. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I've, I've always had, I've got... They call me the crazy Spitfire guy because I've got like six of them, but eight. 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 Sorry, <laughs> I've lost count. But um, my dad, my dad, through all the cars that he always had, and you know, he jumped into Porsches and all kinds of stuff. He had bought a little Triumph Spitfire Mark II from a new car show in 1965, and we we've kept it. It's always been in my family. So this will be the 51st year that it's been in the family, and really. Two people have been the operators of it, my father and then me. And, you know, I think that for, for, for me, that car showed me growing up how something that's a piece of machinery can almost transcend being a piece of machinery and become a member of the family. Right. I feel and, like we should all get together and hug right now because I really love you guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, uh, you know, it, it kind of it becomes sort of a transcendental type thing, but... You know, it, it is weird because I think I see that in these guys here, too, is, you know, you view automobiles and really other things that are mechanical, whether it's a motorcycle or an airplane. That they're just pieces of art. They are, oh, yeah. but, but they pick up energy, too. I mean, because, you know, you look at the cars we've built and the trips we've taken in them yeah. and things like that. I mean, we've got cars we've run up the Pacific Coast Highway to events up at Laguna Seca. And Brad said you guys are doing a great race next year. 
We are. We are. And, you know, those cars, it's almost like they kind of absorb some of the good experiences out of those and some of the blood, sweat, and tears, too. But, you know, that becomes more than just a piece of machinery at that well, point. Well, you it's absorb the car, and the car absorbs you. In my opinion, that goes yeah. two ways. You yeah, know, exactly. And all three of us, we all have family cars, cars mm-hmm. that have been the family oh, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I've got my mom's original 64-and-a-half Mustang with huh. 22,000 miles on it. So. I was in the Navy, uh, and when I got out of the Navy in the, I forget what year, in the, in the 90s, I, I, I had saved up $5,000. I bought a 1965 Mustang and drove it from San Francisco, California to Three Lakes, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. That's, That's nice. Yeah. So, I mean, I can relate to all the things you guys are talking about. Random question. Since every car you've named that Wade has, I'm wondering, is he five foot four? No. Uh, because six. because I, don't, I don't know how you fit in anything that you're describing. Well, let's just say that if you were to smear strawberry jam all over me, it would look like the cars gave birth when I got out of <laughs> It's so like you which came first, the chicken or the egg. You don't know if the car is driving him or he's driving the car? Well, you know, it's funny because we've got a couple of these cars that are, you know, and when I say dimensionally correct, the ones we build are dimensionally correct. And you learn really quickly that Sterling Moss was not a big guy. Yeah. You so, realize that Americans have gotten much fatter over the past 50 years? Yeah, <laughs> and taller and everything. So, you know, sometimes you get in them and you're like, hey, I look like Grape Ape. You know, I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, hey. the, that was the most disappointing thing when we finished the C-Type was going, I can't wait to drive this and I can't fit in you the car. You can't fit in it? In the words of Chris Farley, we could say fat guy in a little car. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, yeah. And, the, and then the thing is, is you know, you pull up to a gas station to refuel one, and everyone's looking at you taking pictures, and you go, there is no way I can get out of this car without being like a <laughs> Without embarrassing nose. myself? So, you know, I usually get out and fall out of them, and I'll go, I'll give him two on the dismount. You know, I mean, it's just... <laughs> you just roll your ass onto the pavement and then stand up. Much. Yep. You just you have to make a joke out of it and laugh at yourself because you're you know you feel like Chevy Chase and uh, National Lampoons you know there's nothing you can do right to look cool so um, let's let's change gears a little bit uh, we talked about all the all your stuff the spider the C type and the slab side I mean you guys have a whole bunch of other cars you're bringing in from um, over in Europe that are gorgeous uh, my personal favorite. Um, I, the blue train, I would just, I don't know what I would do to own that car or the number one. Those two are my favorites. Um, what do you guys, what's going on with these cars that I assume you're, are you a dealer? Are you the sole importer we, of these from yeah. overseas? Yeah, we're the North American distributor for a company called Vintage Racing Green. Is this Silas talking right now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and they are uh, out of Wales, uh, just a little town which you can't really pronounce, but phonetically it's Lilani, uh, just outside of Swansea in Wales. And what they do is they take, uh, they've been doing this for about 25 years, I guess, 20 or 25 years. And they used to be, uh, it's a, a father-in-law and, and son-in-law that were into cars and they were doing restorations. And they sort of ran into the same frustrations we did doing restorations as it's decent money and everything, but sometimes you don't have the best customers and they got tired of building cars for other people. So they started building cars for themselves and the ones that they liked. And I think they started out with a Ferrari Mm -hmm. uh, recreation. Uh, And then they started getting into these uh, mostly Bentley recreations. They do a couple other models. They do an Alfa Romeo as well. Uh, But what they do is they'll take, uh, a chassis from a uh, Mark 6 uh, Bentley, which were built from 48 to 52, 
uh, strip those down, and then uh, rebody them as the vintage uh, Bentleys that you see. The the blue train, which was the twenty nine, I think, yeah, twenty nine car. They're only uh, two made. One still exists. And the first time they showed their blue train at Goodwood, everybody thought it was the real one, and the real one was there. Uh, so, and they do the old number one, uh, which was their first Le Mans, uh, Bentley's first Le Mans winner, uh, one in 29 and 30. Uh, they do, uh, some other ones like, uh, the, uh, Le Mans Coupe, the Speed 8, uh, which is a four seater, and that's their only four seater that they build. Alpine. Uh, they do an Alpine, they do, uh, 3.8 special. Yeah, 3 eight special, and then they do an, uh, an Alfa Romeo, uh, Mio Amelia car. Yeah, the Mio Amelia car. The they do one a fastback that, too. Uh, they do do a fastback. They do a fastback coupe, and they do a uh, drophead coupe. A drophead coupe as well. Continental. Yeah. Uh, their most popular is that they sell are the Speed Eight uh, and Blue Train. Uh, Blue Train being not the most expensive, but one of the most expensive, and because of the demand, the wait list on those is. That- up to four year, four to five years. That was going to be my question. Yeah, it depends. What when they they only do one show a year, uh, which we've attended a couple of times with them uh, in Essen, Germany, uh, and all they do is they have their cars on display. People come up and they put names on a list, uh, and they take take the names. So if you came in and said, "I want a, a old number one," when can I have it? They'll say, "Well, put your name down here. You're first on the list. We can have one to you in eighteen months." Hmm. And but if you sit there and go, okay, eighteen months, yeah, that sounds great. But let me go talk to my wife, and you come back two days later. You're number say, yeah. seven. Said she yeah. said, great, um, I'm, I'm in. So I'm going to have this in eighteen months. He goes, no, you're going to have it in three years. And you go, well, why? Well, because now you're fifteenth on the list, and everybody's in front of you. How many so, of these have made it stateside? Uh, a handful, a few through us, and then a few people have gone to Europe and bought them as used cars. So. Um, um, basically, if you're going to buy one in North America, new, you go through us. Um, there are some on the secondary market that have been used in events or private collections, and people will buy those and bring them in. Our dilemma was is we actually built an old number one for ourselves as a demo car because we couldn't keep one in stock. Is you know every time we would try to get one, it would sell, and then we're going well, you know we're going to Pebble Beach or we're going to Amelia Island. And we don't have a car to take because we would have to call the owner up and say, "Can we hey, borrow your hey, car back?" And, yeah, we had to do that for yeah, last year. Yeah, we had to do that for Pebble Beach last year, which luckily the owner was great, and we actually flew him out there and his family so they could enjoy it as well. It's kind of a thank you for letting us use the car. But um, so we've got an old number one here to do demos with, and you know, guys, it's it's hard to convey it, you know, in a phone conversation or in pictures, but the scale of these cars and the noises they make. Um, it's like nothing you've ever seen. I took a guy out yesterday in old number one that isn't even a car guy, and he texted me yesterday evening, and he said it took me about two hours to come down from riding in that car. And he said, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And, um, you know, it, it's it's amazing because they're big cars. They, they're very commanding in their presence, and when they drive down the road of their show – but they're not hard cars to drive either. I mean, they're very tractable. Um, they have big straight eight engines in them. Um, you know, they make like 240 pound feet of torque from like 1200 RPM. So, um, you know, it, it's not a car you've really got to ring out. It'll keep up with freeway traffic. 
and um, you know, top end on them is about 105, 110 miles an hour. So, and, uh, and the nice thing is they are they are a true Bentley. It's a Bentley chassis. Yep. It's titled as Bentley. Bentley Drivers Club recognizes it. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. It goes in there is a there's a book out that the Bentley Drivers Club puts out. It's called uh, B Specials and Special Bentleys, and it's basically a registry of any rebodied Bentley. It goes back to the old coach work. Bentley didn't really sell cars. They sold you a chassis and an engine. You took it to your coach builder and built a car around it. Which is uh, why there's so many examples that have such limited numbers. You know, exactly. you talk exactly. about like the magnitude of these cars. I've only been lucky enough to see them in like museums. I don't know if you're familiar with like Revs is a museum down in Naples, Florida that has some, been some there. Yep. really beautiful examples of cars of this type of uh, vintage, I guess. I don't know what else to say. Um, they are. They're just extraordinary. And you were talking about like you can only like you're using those Mark Six chassis. And Silas, before you got in the room, we were talking about you know the authenticity of the three models that you guys have here, and how difficult it would have to be to find you know uh, spider engines and things like that. But you would think that it's got to be even more difficult to be able to find Mark Six chassis and straight eight engines and things like that. But I the, guess when yeah, you're yeah, moving the chassis into- are. Uh- they come up. They're they're more readily available. The Mark Sixes are. They're they're old saloons. You know the from the fifties. Uh, they did make a couple of rare uh, versions of it that uh, Racing Green does not like to use. They'd rather have those restored back to original. Mm-hmm. Uh, their body types. Uh, Wade has a photographic memory. Yeah, I, I mean, there's like that. Park Ward and Hooper and Mulliner and. You know, some of those folks, the custom coachworks, did bodies on those chassis. So it would be a disservice to those cars to turn to, it into something else. Yeah, right. to dismantle them. So, but you know, Bentley by that time had their own in-house steel bodyworks, and those cars were production line cars. So um, those are what we usually seek out for a donor. And uh, you know, the racing green cars are kind of interesting because while they're not nut for bolt like what a twenty-nine would have been. They're still a Bentley through and through. So, you know, what, what's really neat is a lot of the vintage driving events recognize that, you know, a lot of guys aren't going to get out a 27 Bentley and run it in the Peking to Paris Valley. But these guys that own these cars will. So it's interesting to see these racing Bentleys get accepted to these events and then do really well in them. So a few years back, one of the uh, Speed 8s ran Peking to Paris, came in, Seventh overall, first in class. And I mean, you're talking about, you know, a car that's a custom coachwork car rebuilt running through the Mongolian desert on no roads. And, you know, it, it, taking an absolute beating, kind of akin to a overseas Baja race. And, uh, you know, ending up in Paris still in one piece and with two drivers in it that, you know, are still conscious and all that kind of stuff. So. You know, I think that when we talk to people about these cars, you get two reactions. You get, you know, wow, that's really cool. What's it like to drive? And then you get, wow, that's beautiful. I want to put it in my collection. And both are cool and both are valid. But, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is, is for as pretty as they are and as intricate looking as they are. How drivable they are. Yeah, yeah they're totally exactly. usable. So I, mean, I, would, I would love to know. I'll tell you that. Um yeah, I just again, I can't even tell you what it would be like to to own, much less drive one of these things. They're just so beautiful. Um, you know, you guys were talking about the donor cars. 
this has to be a tough business because I would think that the donor market would be so flexible or volatile, I don't know what the right word is, that there can't really be a price on one of these cars. You can't say starts at $159.99, you know, just because doesn't so much of that depend on how you go out and grab the donor or where it's coming from? Because I, you know, with like the slab side and stuff like that, we said, you know, I'm sure there's donor stuff out there because Ford engines are readily available. But when you're talking about the Bentley stuff again, isn't that donor market? Donor market is not, normally you're finding what we need is a chassis. The car doesn't have to be a running car. Uh, It needs to have certain bits and pieces on it. They want the interior uh, especially dash area intact with gauges, steering wheel, and and your you know fuel mixture knobs on the steering wheel. Uh, they want the brakes uh, off some of it. Suspension parts. Some of the suspension. And you're finding all that stuff, and it's usually we're finding, we're finding the, the same cars price. With that stuff. Yeah, we find the cars with that stuff. If we don't, matter of fact, the one our old number one we sent over had some missing suspension parts. But when we go over to their factory, they've got three different locations, and in one of them, it's two warehouses full of uh, Bentleys being dismantled for parts. So it they have blows my mind that you guys can find this stuff. And again, I don't, I, without the internet, I don't know that this business is possible. No, uh, no I would here, agree. Here's the interesting thing kind of as a microcosm around the Bentleys is what we found is there's a pretty good market for them in the United States because of something that happened in the really the seventies, eighties and nineties. And that was, you know, anybody that's familiar with, Great Britain knows that your car has to be MOT'd. So, you know, they have the Ministry of Transportation does safety checks on a periodic basis, and your tires have to have enough tread, your brakes have to work equally on all four wheels. Um, you know, the bodywork can't have an excessive amount of rust. So, you don't get away with the whole jalopy thing like you used to in the United States. So, what happened with these Bentleys was is they would get enough age on them because, you know, you figure by the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, these are 1940s and 50s models. You know, they had 30, 40, 50 years on them, and they were failing the MOT test mm. because they'd be a little rusty or the brakes didn't work good. And at that point, the value of the cars was really low, particularly in Great Britain. So what would happen was is these British owners would go, you know, the hell with it. I'm not going to pay to fix this car. I'll send it overseas because somebody in the States will cobble this thing together and keep it going. And a lot of them came to the States, and a fair amount of them got a – Chevrolet 350 thrown in them, you know, <laughs> off they went. But there's a good part of them that somebody over here in the States got them and made the needed repairs and didn't have to have them inspected, and they chugged on down the road for another 10 or 15 years. So you see a lot of the cars that we buy, I always get a kick out of it, they still have a British plate on them, a license plate. Uh-huh. And we kind of keep a collection of the British license plates off of these cars, and it's exactly what happened. Somebody gave up on them in Britain, and it wasn't worth fixing. So they sent them stateside. And yeah, I, I think that that still exists. I mean, I'm a sucker. I have a. I used to have a right-hand drive Defender. Um, yeah. You know, and basically it was junk over there, but I couldn't tell you how happy I was to get it. So I, I think uh, that still forbid, happens forbid, today. Forbid, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny when we go back and forth over there because it really is forbidden fruit because we're looking at all the things over there like – you know, I know it sounds wacky to people, but the Celica GT4, you know, I mean, you've got the turbocharged four-wheel drive Celica that they got that we never got. We're like, oh, well, I lived God. in Japan for four years and, and you know, that what was known as the Skyline GTR over yeah. there. It might as well just be a, a, a Toyota Camry here. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, they view that as just another car. Right. And they're telling us, they're going, 
hey, I'll tell you what, do you guys have the center console off of a Mark II Volkswagen Golf? Yeah, they like the, they like the American bumpers. They like the American version and the American bumpers we on their cars, <laughs> and we want the European bumpers. Exactly. Up. We always want what we can't have, right? Yeah. Tell you what, yeah. So it, it's always it's it's amusing that that's how it works. But that that's a lot of it. It's it's forbidden fruit, you know, and it's what everybody doesn't have is what they want. Um. Guys, I've uh, I've kept you on too long. I could go on all day with you guys. Is there anything else uh, that you got going on that you want to talk about? Otherwise, I think I should probably let you go. I know you, you guys got a new shop going up, right? Yeah, we've got a uh, a post and beam shop going up. So we've gone old school with the shop. We've trip- typically been in CMU and steel shops. So we decided to take the shop kind of retro too and. Um, we, uh, we ended up buying a setup that was shipped in from the West Coast that's all big timbers and post and all of that. And it's, uh, I guess it looks probably like a shop from what, a hundred years ago. Yeah. And, barn. Uh, but it's new. And, um, so yeah, but kind of a barn style thing. So, you know, one of the, th- one of the challenges of this business is, is we found that when we're in a big location with a big sign out front, there's always people in the shop, which, we love because they're great people, but we can't get a lot of work. Can't get right? anything done. Yeah, I, I know. How so we're kind of, we're we're kind of. I guess we're going close. Basically, we're saying we're going closed shop. Yeah, we'll let people come in, but you have to make an appointment yeah. by appointment only. I guess yeah. speaking of that, if somebody's interested in what you guys are offering, how do they get a hold of you, and what's what's the process? The easiest either either call or uh, they can email. Uh, visit our website five hundred two motorworks dot com. Yeah, there's a there's a submission form uh, on the website, uh, or you can uh, email us at uh, info at 502motorworks.com, uh, or like I said, just give us a call. Yeah, just give us a call. Matt, Silas, Matt. Wade, uh, some of the most beautiful cars I've ever seen, in all honesty. Uh, check out the 502motorworks.com website. Um if if you can cash in your 401k and get one of these, it would be well worth it because this is probably better retirement money than you're making anywhere else. Guys, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us on the Reincarnation Podcast, and we hope we can talk with you again soon. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for having Great. us. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks again, guys. All right. Take care.